Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Scripture says these words, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. When Jesus said of the second great commandment that it is like the first, there were a couple reasons at face value why I think that certainly could be said to be true. The first is that love truly remained the foundational principle upon which the first was already established. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And thus, the second was certainly like it in that we are to also love our fellow neighbor. You know, Paul once said, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13 and verse 10. Love fills the purpose of God's commands and all the spaces in between. Love is the foundation of God's rule of law. I love my neighbor because love is God's purpose for existence. Now, the second is that love is the natural outpouring of one who loves God. If we love our God, then his love is abiding in us. And we can do nothing except pour out that very same love onto one another. It says, John said, if we love one another, God abides in us. We could also say it this way. If God abides in us, we love one another. And John goes on to say that his love has been perfected in us. It's been made complete. That is the way love ought to be or ought to act, at least insofar as God's love is concerned. Now, in this lesson, I want to address a third and final reason. And it's one that I think will radically change our way and our thinking toward man, if only we will keep this perspective in view. The second great commandment really and truly is like the first because man has been made in the image and likeness of God. In fact, it might be true that this is one of the earliest and most foundational principles in the life and understanding of man because these were the words that were first uttered by the breath of God when he spoke man into existence. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us... This is God speaking. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I think this truth really does possess an inseparable tie to our treatment toward fellow man. Now, I want to get deeper into that with you, but first I want to address a few matters that I think require a little thinking at first. First, I want to address this matter of image bearing. Have you ever really thought about that statement, made in our image? What does that exactly mean, to be made in the image of God? Then after we address that question, I think then we will be prepared to examine how this fact is made significant in Scripture. We need to do that because we need to understand how does Scripture reveal to us the significance, the meaning of this being made in God's image? And then I believe we will be prepared to better understand how this applies to your life and to mine, especially insofar as we are directed by God to love one another. So let's ask this first question. What is the image of God? Well, the word image very simply refers to that thing you see when you look in the mirror. You know, what you see when you look in the mirror 
is not the actual being and existence of yourself, but it is a reflection of yourself. It's a kind of representation of yourself. It's an image. Now, depending on the kind of mirror you use, maybe how clean it is, what the lighting is like, some mirrors and some images within that mirror will more closely represent your true image, while others may not so closely represent your appearance, we might say. There is an instance in the Old Testament where the exact same word that is used to translate image in Genesis 1.26 is likewise used to describe what the Philistines crafted when they sought to return the ark to Israel. Scripture says that the Philistines were counseled by their priests and their diviners to make images of the tumors and the rats that had consequently ravaged their land for having in their possession that which they did not respect or give glory to, the ark of God, which contained a kind of similarity, a representation, an image, if you will, of the word of God. So what is like, what is similar, what may even bear the mold of is really the idea behind having an image and especially having been made in the image of God's own representation, his own similarity. In fact, again, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the meaning of image is somewhat supplemented for us in the very next phrase. He says, according to our image, according to our likeness. The Lord's brother uses a word that is translated similitude in the New King James Version, James chapter 3 and verse 9. Similitude. Now, we might be immediately led to ask, and, and this is the question oftentimes that uh, really seems to provoke the mind and make it wonder, in what way are we according to God's likeness? You know, what a, what a wonder that is to think about. In what way are we molded in God's image and his similitude? Now, it's possible that this question has been unnecessarily complicated over the centuries, and yet it is still entirely possible that what we may propose to understand about it is far more unimaginable than we will ever truly know. But there are those who have sought to flesh out various possibilities when thinking about the image of God and being made in his likeness. One is that we really do bear some physical resemblance to the form and appearance of God. Another is that our human attributes, like our mind, our emotion, our consciousness, our determination of will, all these things that really separate us in so many ways from the animal world and the plant world, reflect some measure of God's essence, his personality, his likeness. Another may say that is really more to do with our spiritual inclinations, our desire and want to know of those things that are beyond the physical realm, to, to pray, to worship, to clasp hands together, and to devote ourselves to something above. And some, finally, will propose a different path altogether. Some will note the possibility that God simply made us to be as his image. And in fact, that is the way the Hebrew can be translated in Genesis 1.26, that God said to let us make man as our image. That is, 
as image bearers, as representatives, we might say, of God, who he is and what his desires and his will are here upon this earth. Now, this last idea really places focus on what man does in God's likeness rather than who man is in God's likeness. You see, in this representation of God's likeness, we exercise dominion, we become fruitful, we do and we speak as God would have us to speak. And so there's really a lot of legitimacy as well to this last view. Now, being the good postmodern millennial that I'm supposed to be, the answer would simply be to group all these ideas together and say, yes. But dare I say that this is the best answer. And dare I say that the Bible, over the course of its entire revelation, slowly but surely does provide some answer to them all, some revelation of their truth and their validity among them all. Does God not possess a likeness to our human attributes, our determination of will, our emotions? Doesn't the Bible describe God as having a heart and even at times being sad, happy, glad, joyful over uh, the things that we do? And also, does God not possess a likeness to our spiritual desires? Holiness, righteousness, God is spirit, Jesus said. And, And thirdly, also, when we think about that last point from before, does God not possess a likeness to the many functions and responsibilities that he has given us? Things like service and saving and communication, things which all he himself engages in throughout Scripture and has consequently endowed upon us in our duties and responsibilities. You know, the only likeness that oftentimes remains questionable, even in my mind, is that of the human appearance. Jesus says that God is spirit. And yet, even when I think about that, what do I really know about that? You know, Scripture still speaks of God having form in John 5, 37, none of which we have ever seen, but still, he has form. He's not just some floating mass or consciousness. And Scripture still speaks of his face in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20. And so indeed, perhaps it is possible that man has been set up like a block uh, of wood or uh, cement and God has, in some similarity, crafted us out in his likeness, his image. Well, my lesson really is not to dwell on this subject, but I spend time here to point out this very important point. Only in man, whatever it is to be said about God's image and our likeness, only in man is it ever said to be found This incredible, awesome, glorious, powerful, holy, upright, perfect God-likeness and image to be stamped upon us, upon man. You know, look around you. You will not find God's image and likeness stamped upon anyone else or anywhere else. You won't find it in the stars above. You won't find it in the waters below, the earth that surrounds you. You won't find it in some alien beings hidden in Roswell, New Mexico. You won't find it in that little pooch at home, wagging his little tail, no matter how cute he might look. Only in man is it ever found a likeness and similitude to the God we worship. 
You know, when I think about that, it's no wonder that Jesus said of the second great command, after he said to love the Lord your God, he said the second is like it. Indeed, it is like it. You shall love your neighbor because who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is the only being in this entire world that has been crafted in the image and likeness of God. There's nothing else in this universe like God but your neighbor man. And so, love him. Love her. Love your fellow God image bearer. There's no one else like them. Now, in what way does this manifest in Scripture, this being made in his image, his likeness? Because uh, maybe it's a little too much of a venture for you at this moment to connect these dots between being made in God's image and also loving him. So let me actually speak to this question. How does this truth actually manifest its own self in Scripture? In what ways, in other words, do we see this truth about being made in God's image become something significant in Scripture? And and, in what way does Scripture use that significance? Well, arguably, it becomes evident, really, from the dawn of time, its significance, its meaning. Think about this. You know, when God had finished all of his creation before Adam, Scripture says that there was still not a being on earth that was comparable to Adam. In other words, there was nothing that could correspond to him, nothing that could have a close similarity to him, nothing that could be equivalent to the man Adam. There was nothing on earth that could respond to Adam as Adam did to the earth. There was nothing that could love Adam, care for Adam, do to Adam as Adam would do to the rest of creation, as Adam would love and care for the creation. No one could return that kind of love to him. Look and consider. Think about the sad state. Imagine in your mind the man Adam with no one, nothing else comparable to him. Imagine a world that could never reciprocate the feelings you feel. Imagine a world that could never reciprocate the thoughts that you think, the songs that you want to lift up and praise God with, and likewise the burdens and the distresses, the pain that you sometimes bear. No one could ever share in those feelings and those thoughts with you. And so, even really and truly from day one, Scripture really does provoke us, I think, to love our image-bearing neighbors by revealing a world to us that would not have them. A world that would not have our fellow image-bearers. It would be such a sad world, such a sad state. And so I think Scripture already reveals to us the significance of being made in God's image for when, finally, Adam receives his wife and he says, Look now, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He finally has someone who can compare to him, someone who can relate to him and love him the way he loves, feel the way he feels, bear the burdens that he bears. Oh, what a different world suddenly Adam's fear becomes. 
what a, a different realm. How, how life truly comes to life when he finally receives someone like him. And so, yes, I think from day one, Scripture reveals to us the true significance of uh, having someone who is also made in the same image, the same likeness of that which we have been made. And so naturally, naturally we are led to love them because they are like us and we together are like our heavenly maker. Now, there are some other passages as well that I think make this clear. Scripture gives us some very pointed words when we come back to that key scripture that uh, we read from before at the beginning of this lesson, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, very poetic, very popular statement. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. You know, there really can be no mistake about the purpose and reason here. One scholar said, for introduces a clause of reason, making this sentence the reason why human life is not to be taken. It's not to be taken because in the image of God, that fellow man was made. How, how dare we raise up our hands to strike against him when he looks like, in so many ways, our own maker. Now, also in a similar way, maybe a little more subtle, the Lord's brother speaks caution about the tongue as well, saying, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. And so in a very similar way, James is saying the same thing. It behooves us to be very cautious and careful with our words. Why? Because our fellow man is in the similitude of God. When we speak against our fellow man, in some sense, we are speaking to the very likeness of God. And so together, these passages really tell us, be careful what you say and be careful what you do. Because those you speak against and those you do violence against are those who have been carved out in the very likeness of God. And, and that brings me to one last and very important scripture that comes to mind when I think about the significance, how scripture makes significance, this image bearing of God. And I think it's found in Jesus' teaching about the last days. I, I trust you're going to recall these words, but now I want you to really think about them in the framework of what we're talking about here. These concepts, this this concept of loving your fellow neighbor and the likeness we share in God. I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I'm going to key in on one important verse that I think really brings this home. It's found in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. and Jesus is telling a parable about dividing the sheep on one hand and the goats on another. And he tells the sheep to enter into the kingdom because... They fed him, and they clothed him, and they visited him, and they took him in. And then to the others, he cast them out of the outer darkness, the goats, because they did not feed him or clothe him or visit him or take him in. And the question that surfaces to immediate attention is, Lord, when did we do or not do all of these things? And the answer is given both in verse 40 and its counterpart in verse 45, but really can just be summed up in this. Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, Jesus says, you did it to me. And so I think when Jesus says these words, it, it really becomes so clear once again that, yes, in as much as we do to our fellow neighbor, the way we speak, the way we act, we are, because of our image bearing, our likeness, doing likewise to God. 
It is indeed a reflection of how we treat our God as we treat our fellow neighbor. And there are a lot of other passages that I think would still allude to this concept. Uh, Even the old Proverbs kind of spoke about this. Proverbs 14.31, He who reproaches the poor reproaches his maker. Uh, Yes, again, as we treat our fellow neighbor, so we are showing and demonstrating how we would and how we are treating our God. Now, let's come to this third and final question, and arguably the most important for us whenever we study the Bible. How can I apply this to my life? What does this mean for me? How can this be made significant in my life? I, I want to provide just a few suggestions here, some commands, really, if you will, that I think come directly from Scripture and exhort us and encourage us to do these things, things that we can hopefully all do together in the days that lie ahead. Number one, when you look upon your neighbor, I want to encourage you to see God first and then man second. I'm not saying that when you look at man, see God himself and worship him as God himself. Absolutely not. When you look upon man, however, I want to challenge you to look beyond his imperfections, look beyond his flaws, his shortcomings, and I want to encourage you to see the perfect, flawless, never-failing God. God has not failed, nor does he ever fail, in the way and in the manner that he has made each and every one of us. Everyone has value. Everyone has purpose. Everyone has intrinsic worth if for no other reason than the fact that he is the product and likeness of God. Now, we understand from Scripture that renewal in the life of man is needed. We all need to grow in the likeness and semblance of God. But you know, at the end of the day, there is still a base level of God's likeness that is found in each and every one of us. So that whether we are mature and we act like and we talk like in the imitation of God, or maybe, sadly, we are so far gone and debased in our spiritual likeness of God, still, because of this base level likeness, this base level image, we all share in being made by our maker, being carved out in his image, each and every one of us are still worthy of love and respect far greater than some shrub that was enjoyed by the prophet Jonah or some pet animal that's enjoyed by our modern man today. And so I want to encourage you, see God first when you look upon your neighbor. Second, when you speak to your neighbor, I want to encourage you, talk to God first and then man second. You know, there's a reason why Jesus says every idle word men may speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. I think that statement is meant to do a lot more than just scare us. Oh, be careful about every little word you say. No, I think there's more to it than that. You know, there's no other being in this world that can be reached by your words and by your tongue than that of your fellow man. Why? Because he has been made in the likeness of God. He shares in God's spirit. He shares in God's 
feelings, his emotion, his mind, his heart. And he shares in this communication, this communication that has been uniquely given to man and no other being in this world, no other creature in this world shares in that communication. And I'm convinced that this communication that has been given to us, this ability to communicate, has and bears some likeness to that of God. It is special. It is unique. And so no other kingdom in this world speaks and communicates the way we do because we have this image, this likeness of God. And so when Jesus says every word that men may speak will be given account, I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that we are speaking not just to our fellow man, but we are speaking to the very likeness and similitude of God. James' brother says, so speak as those who will be judged. Uh, again, giving weight and heaviness to our communication. The Apostle Paul said, we speak, listen to this, not as pleasing men, but as God who tests our hearts. The Apostle Paul was very mindful that when he spoke, he was speaking in the presence of God. And so when we look at our neighbor, when we speak to our neighbor, I want to encourage you, talk to God first. Be mindful that we've been made in his likeness. And the way we speak is a reflection of ourselves. And what we speak is, in many ways, going to be received by those who have been given a God-likeness. And your words will matter. Well, finally, I want to encourage you to do this. And myself as well. I'm included in this. When you do to your neighbor, do to God first and then man second. Yes, when you look, when you talk, and when you do. Ah, see God first, man second. James says, so do also. He not only says, so speak, but also so do as those who will be judged by the law. Our works, our deeds, again, are very heavy and weighty. Because we ourselves have been made in God's image, and the one that we are speaking to and doing to has also been made in God's image. Paul says to bondservants under their masters, whatever you do, do it heartily as the Lord and not to men. Why? For you serve the Lord Christ. You are serving Jesus. You are serving the Lord as you serve your fellow man. Because I believe, I'm convinced that it is this image-bearing that they share in, this likeness of God that is causing so many of our deeds with our fellow man and all of our deeds, ultimately, to be weighed so heavily. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus again, who says, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Man will still be imperfect. Man will still be flawed. Man is still going to be in need of correction and rebuke, warning, even disfellowship at times. Again, I'm not suggesting that as we look at our fellow man that he is God himself. There is a likeness there, but there is still a great difference. But at the end of the day, whether friend or foe, we still need to be mindful that as we look, speak, and do to our neighbor, it is as if we are standing before the Lord himself. It is as if a father is standing right beside his son. And that son may very well be worthy of condemnation, of judgment, 
The Father himself may very well acknowledge it. But be mindful about that connection that the Father still has with his Son. Even a Son who's condemned to die a sinner's death, that Son is standing in the likeness and the image of his very own Father. A Father who is to be respected. A Father who is to be revered. And this Heavenly Father is to be worshipped. And so as we conclude, again, let us encourage one another with these words. You shall love your neighbor, for in the image of God he made man.